<laughs> did it again. At least we didn't go the whole show. There we go. All right, we just we just started talking to Art, and uh, we're going to record that now. We missed the intro and some news, uh, but come to VMworld Europe, and you'll get all the news there. You can go watch and listen to the Facebook live stream. Uh, we'll get this new interface down. We are just starting to interview Art. He's told us about where he is. Art, uh, uh, how do you say your last name? Fuel. 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 Art Fuel, Senior Product Technical Product Manager, and we're just getting his history of, of containers, and we'll go into PKS because we're going to be talking about PKS the rest of the show. Yeah, so I was saying, um, you know, uh, containerization is, is, if you're familiar with something, not familiar with that, but if you're familiar with, say, a sandbox type of environment like you have with many VPNs and such, it's, a, it's a basically the same sort of thing that's happening. We'll take a section of the file system, carve it out and put controls into the kernel to say that section of the file system can't talk to other sections of the file system. And we really spent, you know, the, the, uh, just a lot, the whole industry as a whole spent years and years of, you know, proving out a lot of that model to make sure it is very reliable and consistent and it, doesn't, it does what we want it to do. It doesn't do what we don't want it to do and so on. Uh, and so we have this reliable way to take, you know, one uh, operating system, a common storage uh, environment that's uh, local to the operating system and partition it in a secure way. Um, and, partition, and it's the same thing with the, um, the, the resource access, right? Because if we're, we can't just partition the file system. We have to make sure if there's a couple different types of processes that we uh, running on the same hardware, that we have a way to arbiter access to the hardware between the different processes. And so um, this goes, again, it's not a new thing. So for right. Linux, uh, this concept of C groups has been worked on for years. And so that provides a mechanism in the Linux kernel to say that this particular container has a certain amount of access to CPU and memory resources and so on. And there's a few other little things to make sure that uh, each application is completely isolated and each container is completely isolated. Uh, and, you know, kind of there you go. You have a, a kind of a fully sandbox environment, uh, or you can, and that's what a container is. You have a bunch of them running in a common operating system. And kind of the other really cool side of uh, the container thing is, um, you know, this, 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 when we isolated a container, right, we're uh, separating the administration of that container kind of from the administration of the operating system. Right. been a huge, huge problem for, if you think about, if you've worked in IT, um, you've got some developers, and in general, traditionally, uh, someone in IT operations will maintain some gold standard virtual machine that'll have the right versions of the Java virtual machine and the developer libraries and say, here you go, developer team, you know, here's a, a, a virtual machine that has the common dependencies, and you end up with this big bloated virtual machine, uh, and because it has all the all the stuff preloaded. And I think over the years, uh, you know, we're starting. We've been realizing now we got to tune that stuff down a little bit. We don't want to have these giant bloated entities, and that's not a virtual machine versus container. That's more of how we do the process of who deals with the dependencies for the application. This has been a massive problem for enterprise because now you've got an application code and it's infused into the same operating system that's being managed by IT. Mm -hmm. right? And you think about now IT's got to go, or operations has to go yeah. and upgrade that operating system. They got to patch it, and maybe that hit the open SSH yeah. library yeah, yeah, that was there, yeah, yeah. and now the code's yeah. down, and whose right. problem is it? Right. That goes away with containers, right? Because now the application is independent of the operating system. It doesn't install and infiltrate it into a registry. It's completely independent. So it's kind of like the like this, the Docker idea. You know, you just right. kind of latch it on and latch it off. I kind of think of it almost like you know, years ago we all messed around with dual booting our hard drives, and it was always sure. a mess, right? And then all of a sudden now now they change hardware. Do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I messed with it some, but the cool thing is now with the changes in hardware, I can take a new Ubuntu on a thumb drive, plug it in, and I boot up that computer, and it's something else. Right? And I take that thumb drive out, and I'm back to my regular computer. And it's a, it's a different thing, but I think it's somewhat analogous to with your sure. containers. You just pop it on and pop it off, and it doesn't infiltrate itself into the system. And so that means, like, now, as a IT operations, I can go and upgrade that operating system anytime I want, right? To, to move the workloads off of a particular node. That needs all the application dependencies are just, yeah. just in the container itself. Yeah, right. and, yeah. and so like part of it is, is we had to put those dependencies there because how's the, the developers a lot of times, they weren't responsible for that. And that's a hard problem, right? Who knows what dependencies am I and who's going to figure that out? Well, there's some other things that have changed in when people are building containers 
they've made these new build systems and they're really easy to use. The developers are pretty much on board with these. It's yeah, super easy to use and it's a standard make file type process. Uh, uh, but the difference is, is these new build tools will go grab the dependencies for the developer. So if I write uh, you know, a piece of code, it could be you know, Java, it could be say a Go application, I'm about my code, and when I run through that build process, the build process itself builds the dependencies specific to that application into the container, thereby really creating the environment where the developer side of the house can manage that dependency. And I say that it has to be, and, you know, every organization can be different. It doesn't right. have to be 100% the developer's problem. But at minimum, it creates this beautifully clean line of abstraction that has a dramatic impact on troubleshooting. So that's interesting, Art, because I remember, you know, just going back to the entire concept of containers, even 15 years ago, you know, it's like a basic, you know, Linux command, change root, right? So I can change root into, uh, you know, a file system and go, well, this is my new root, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, as you point out, that the complexity of dependency mapping doesn't go away with just a change root, right? So this containerization and this idea of, hey, I can just kind of, uh, you know, like a piece of cellophane, like, you know, on, on a window, <laughs> you know, like say, okay, now, uh, you know, the version of Python I need is installed, you know, but it, in a separate container, it isn't there. Um, Right, like that. That's or kind of having to, if you got to install Python two and Python three in the same right. system, you got to manage all that. It's gone. Right, it's right. gone in the world of containers. You have two applications running on the same server. One needs Python two. One needs Python three. Their file systems and operating environments are completely independent of each other. Right, right. And then also having an open way of really describing um, what those dependencies are, where they come from, and a repeatable way of, of building that environment like inside that con container. So, so, you know, even if I use like somebody third party, you know, container, like I can see, you know, in a document and fashion exactly how they built it. And maybe I don't, I don't even take their container. I just take the make file. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's have a really it elegant solution. It's kind of interesting, you know, is, is with containers, they're built in, in layers. And so if I want to say build a container using Docker's, uh, there's, so the container itself has become a standard. And so when Docker Engine produces a container, what it produces is a, a open container interface compliant container engine, right? And so right. Uh, there's, there's a number of different container tools out there and they're all compatible. They all create these, you know, open container engine compatible containers. And so there's still a little idiosyncrasies in some cases when you're moving from one container engine to another, but that's converging very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a, uh, there's, so when I create this Docker file, I'm going to say, start with, uh, a container that's already built, right? How do I build a container? And so one of the most common ways is someone will start their, you, you create a file called a Docker file. It's a simple text file and um, it'll describe what you want in the container. And in the first line, in most cases, you says something like from Ubuntu 14.04, something, mm -hmm. right? And it'll go out and it'll grab from kind of the standard Docker repository, grab a, a, a pre-built Ubuntu image that has all the basic stuff in it that you need to get started. And then let's say you want to run Nginx. And then you say, so you start your Docker file with a command called from that'll pull another container from somewhere else that has all the basics you need. And then, uh, and then you say you want to run, that's another command in your Docker file, want to run an apt get uh, engine, install nginx. Uh, and you, you tell that in the file. And so when, when, when you say Docker build, and Docker build will go grab the first layer, which is that pre-built Ubuntu container. And then when it builds the run apt get nginx, it builds that on a separate layer. And let's say you want to install something else as well. You know, uh, you'll do another run app, and that'll build that on a separate layer. And that has a lot of interesting, uh, interesting implications, one of which is if you, if you build a container like that, and then you go and push it up into Docker's website, you'll find it'll say this layer already exists, that layer already exists. This, so you're not actually even pushing the whole thing up because of all this layering. And I, I don't mean to complicate things, but it's kind of relating to your previous point in that that layering itself is really, really huge because if you want to replace a particular component that you've built into your application, you can pull the layer out and it's gone, right? It's not an uninstall the way that we've always not trusted uninstall, right? right. <laughs> uh, and so it's just from a, I think from an operator standpoint, there, there is, it's no secret, there is a little learning curve here. I think it's um, getting dramatically better, which we'll talk about, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, there's a huge payoff for operations, I think, in this. Got it, got it. And, and um, I can see how maybe that, you know, an enterprise would be maybe unwilling to let, you know, just the developers run wild about 
you know, what layers they do use. But I, I think it, it feels like it would be much simpler to have like a smaller team just kind of say, here's your list of approved tools from, you know, version to version to version to version. And, uh, and here's what, what you can use and, you know, what we've, you know, agreed is like security audited. Yeah, and that's, that's the challenge, right, is that is as IT departments have faced consumerization and we're used to our various line of business running out to AWS or, or, or any cloud provider, right, um, to do something that uh, we, it, it's not, maybe some things are better there, right? Maybe some things are better at this cloud provider, that cloud provider. We have a lot of things that we want to be able to do internally. We found there's a lot of, uh, one of the things I see now I never used to see, right, is people who are like, we need to bring a lot of this stuff in-house for mm-hmm. cost reasons, for compliance reasons, what have you. Um, and it's been a challenge. I think it's been over 10 years now that most enterprises have been really trying to be able to deliver a service that gives the, the, their, their internal user the same experience that a cloud provider ha- you know, can offer. And um, you know, we haven't gotten to PKS yet as we get into it. That's, to me, what, kind of one of the revolutionary things that PKS does. Because uh, you think, what, what, is, what does the cloud provider have and what's hard about DevOps? The cloud provider gives you a whole bunch of automated stuff, right? And the hard part about DevOps uh, up until now is that we've been coming to you, not all the people who've been telling you you should do this thing, this new DevOps way, and saying, you need a whole bunch of automated stuff. Now go write all the automation, right? And that's, that's the beauty of, I think it's the combination. First, you need a system like Kubernetes, which we'll talk about, and a system like PKS combined with Kubernetes, which PKS kind of gives you Kubernetes um, like you go to a, a cloud service provider, you go to, to uh, Google or Amazon to get Kubernetes, uh, you don't think about something like, how do I get my load balancer? Kubernetes needs load balancers. You can't use Kubernetes without load balancers, but Kubernetes itself doesn't provide load balancers. So you go to a place like you know, Google uh, Container Engine, right? You say, I want a load balancer, and it's just there. And that's, that's a normal thing, because when someone builds a Kubernetes platform, they have to make a choice. Which load balancer am I going to use? Because it doesn't come with Kubernetes. And so with uh, VMware PKS, uh, the model there is it actually builds Kubernetes clusters on demand. It's self-service, well, like, you, like a developer can get straight from a cloud provider. Can we back up? Um, so you described the, uh, the idea of the container and, yeah, and jumped, Docker doing a little ahead yeah, there, you, you the <laughs> Kubernetes. What, what is the relationship between Docker and Kubernetes? Yeah, so that's a great point. Step back back to Docker, and so um, so Docker. We all knew when Docker came out and really started to popularize the idea of containers in the enterprise. And as Docker was doing that, Google came out and said, "That's pretty much exactly the same thing we've been doing for a decade." And so, if you combine the idea, and it's like, okay, enterprises are trying to be able to deliver um, services and say the same with the same experience that a cloud provider can. Well, it turns out that the magic that the Google and a lot of the leading provider, cloud providers had done to deliver their you know, elegant user experiences was actually based on containers and also based on Kubernetes, it turns out. So what is Kubernetes? So uh, when Google came out and, and his Docker was out popularizing the idea of you know, what's a container to the enterprise, Google came out and said, we've already been doing that for 10 years. And to really make containers uh, really a viable first-class product, uh, in the world of containers, you have to have an orchestrator. Um, and so orchestrator is not a new concept. I want something to take my workload and figure out where it goes. Right? I got a mm-hmm. cluster. I, I want an intelligent system to say, here's the placement. So we have things in VDS, right? And we can kind of do similar things inside of vSphere. Um, and it needs to be a little more proactive in terms of managing those workloads in an automated fashion. And so that was always a cool thing, right? Having oh, oh. orchestration is always a cool thing, but especially important with containers. Sorry. So, yeah, you're saying when we talk about Docker, we're really talking about being isolated to one host or one operating system instance. But um, what you're talking about is, listen, I need to instantiate this container. Um, where on, you know, where is the most appropriate place for it to be instantiated? Is it on yeah. a specific operating system instance, or is it on a different one, or... It, you know, which cluster should it be on, uh, and what networking does it need, and what security and that's should it. be wrapped you're, around you're it. making me, like, you're reminding me of all the things I'm skipping past here. I appreciate that, because, yeah, that's the idea. Is, 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 you know, what are, what are containers, again, it's just the, the place to run applications, right? So we have, just like we have VMs that run applications, in some cases we have containers that could be Nginx, just like I might have a VM that's running Nginx. Um, 
And uh, so I have uh, my containers and I have a, a cluster of servers, right? And am I going to go and say server one, you're going to run container one, server two, you're going to run container two, and manually manage that process is really not an ideal thing, right? And it's especially when we think about cloud and delivering a cloud type of service, we know that type of manual thing, it doesn't give us this cool dynamic behavior that we want from a cloud environment. It doesn't self-heal, it doesn't auto-scale, you know, and, and has to, every little bit of it has to be manually managed. And to make it worse, as applications are optimized towards containers, um, containers uh, as applications really are built on this cloud paradigm uh, where we all know this is this legacy paradigm that said we're going to build everything so nothing ever fails. And the cloud paradigm is different, right? It's, it's we're going to build things such that when something does inevitably fail, uh, that things recover. And it, we're not going to have downtime because of that. And so containers in and of themselves um, don't have the ability to, to necessarily run for an extended period of time like we would typically expect out of virtual machines. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why they need a, a monitor, an intelligent orchestrator. Um, you know, another key reason, so as we move towards containerized applications, uh, one thing is important to know is that container applications are not necessarily modern. Right? You can take any, a container application could be any application. And especially let's just point to Linux because that's really where uh, containers have started and are mature. I could take any legacy monolithic containerized application and put it into a container. Right? And so there's nothing inherent about containers that makes your applications more efficient. Um, but the container is the vehicle that uh, is really optimal for if we do move this new direction that uh, cloud applications, you know, like those built by the Google and the cloud leaders, you know, do. They, they build them in small components, right? Rather than putting everything on one operating system and take one functional component and build it into a container and another component. Uh, so maybe I've got an application. Most applications have a database WordPress. for users, right? Oh, WordPress is, is a great one, right? In uh, here, uh, you can go to Docker Hub now and you can download a WordPress container. Uh, that, will that will also have a MySQL in a separate container uh, mm -hmm. already set up. And so it's kind of a great, a great illustration of the concept. I'm keeping my database on a separate, uh, you know, separate environment from my application code. Right. right? And then they, and now my application is no longer one entity. Now it's two entities. Right? And each container um, gets its own IP address, right? This is, it's an interesting thing. And, and that's a, a, a simple, as you get into more complex uh, applications, um, very common enterprise applications, a lot of them are now like what used to be a virtual machine might be 10 or 20 containers, including policy around how do I elastically scale on demand and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, this idea of orchestration where it used to be, it's a nice thing. I would love to have an automated system place my, my virtual machine, um, but it's not as critical in the virtual machine world because a lot of times I just got to get my virtual machine up and then I have application functionality. But to get application functionality for, say, a new containerized application that exists of 10 containers, you know, you've got to, and the 10 containers have to be placed in a particular way. You, you know, you have to have a, um, a system that manages that for you for it really to be uh, production ready. It's interesting that you mentioned um, that, you know, it doesn't have to be a modern, like, born in the cloud, cloud native application in order yep. to be containerized. So we just talked about um, WordPress. You know, one of the things that WordPress has is dependencies on um, maybe specific versions of PHP and Apache, you know, maybe depending on how you're running it. Um, but once you've abstracted the database into a separate container, mm -hmm. right, and you just have uh, WordPress and PHP and maybe, you know, that, uh, that first container, like some of the operations parts of, uh, of dealing with things kind of are a little bit easier. Like um, I, I imagine like upgrading PHP might not even be something that you do. You just spin up a separate container yeah. with the new version of PHP, like all your, you know, WordPress, um, maybe custom code is in yet, you know, yet another layer that gets, you know, um, moved from, from one machine to another. I think you just hit on, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, as we, transition from legacy applications towards cloud native applications, what do we do? And there, there's a lot to that discussion. But I think you hit on the very centerpiece of it, is as we move towards cloud native, what we want to do is we want to take all the components that don't necessarily need to have state saved with them, mm -hmm. and we want to get the state out of there. 
Because right? in that exact example, right, it's all the st if we have it to where all the state is in that database or in a configuration system that's external to the, uh, to the uh, WordPress container, right, we can just wipe out and replace the WordPress with a new one. We don't have to upgrade anymore. Right. right? It's just, oh, we'll drop a new one in and it can plug in and it just, it just picks up where the other one left off. Very, very cool. And I can see that, you know, for example, in that same example, if you have like a web front end, it doesn't have to be WordPress, but, you know, you know, your WordPress site starts to get hammered. Well, now I need two instances of WordPress running in parallel or three or four or 20. Um, then maybe if you have an orchestration engine sitting in front of that, that auto scales it. It's like that's where we start getting away from just containerization and move towards orchestration. And, and that's exactly right. And so if anyone's you know, looked into Docker, or, uh, I know for some it's new, for some you're experienced. Right? So when Docker started, they were initially focused on what's a container and how would I place a container on a server. And um, at the same time they were popularizing the idea of what's a container, uh, there is this realization that container orchestrations are going to be really critical to the standardization and evolution. If, if containers are really going to become you know, a massive way, maybe not the only way, right, but a, a massive industry-wide way of deploying applications. That requires a whole lot of, um, you know, different participation and different vendor ecosystem uh, uh, challenges, right? Um, and so, you know, we get into uh, that environment. Docker was coming out with a new uh, orchestration system called Swarm. And at the same time, Google came out and said, yeah, we've been doing the same thing as Docker for over 10 years. And we want the industry to create a standard because we can't move forward if there's no standard. It's very much like HD DVD versus Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. Like imagine we're all in the, imagine now, because this is a, to make the analogy real, imagine now we're all in the business of producing DVDs, right? Mm -hmm. And we got to make an investment. We're going to pick HD DVD or Blu-ray. I mean, for most businesses at the time, if you're a media producer, that would be a, it could be a life business-ending decision. You picked the wrong one. Right. <laughs> now right. your competitor won, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, the, a lot of the cloud providers see that, and they see for our industry to move forward. Like right now, you know, a good, another good example is, is cloud-native software. We hear a lot about all these cloud-native software. Who's shipping cloud-native software? You can't. You can't ship cloud-native software because there's no standard. There's no executor tarball. I mean, when, you're, when your application now consists of 22 different virtual machines that need to be installed in a very particular way, how do I ship that? If I'm a software vendor, how can I ship that to a customer and expect it's going to work? And that's where this orchestration is so you know, massively important. So Google saw this, uh, uh, and they said, we're going to take what we've been doing for our containers for the past 10 years, um, inside of their system called Borg. And we're going to take our container orchestration there and, out, uh, and open source that. And that's what became Kubernetes. And so it's this system of, uh, it, you know, uh, of being able to deploy workloads automatically and manage and monitor workloads and maintain and self-heal and all these really cool things uh, for your containers. And it's, it has 10 plus years of Google deploying a billion containers a year on it and all their experience built into it. So it's a really uh, powerful revolutionary standard on um, Kubernetes. And um, because, so now I can go into Kubernetes and I can say, I have this application that has 20 different virtual machines, or sorry, 20 different containers, and they need to be installed in a certain way. And it can do that predictably. And so that is the basis by which cloud-native software could potentially be shipped to, to somebody, right? Because if we, if we don't build it, some of us will build it, some of us will buy it, some of us will, most of us will do a combination of both, mm -hmm. right? And, and a lot of folks are wondering, where, when am I going to buy, you know, an application that has all these new cool things? I mean, if I go to the cloud provider, I get it. And when I buy it on, a, on and they made it to me on a, or I get it, I download it on my thumb drive and install it, it's different. It doesn't have the same benefits. And that's because when they ship it, they know it can work predictively on, you know, Windows Server 2016, right? Um, but what if it needed to work on, you know, just this really diverse environment? It's not predictable. So Kubernetes, as enterprises adopt it, and because it's, it's growing so much in popularity and it's become a standard, uh, now it's this mechanism. Now if someone wants to start to say, I'm going to ship you software, if you've got Kubernetes, I can have this really complex software, you can install it, and I know it's predictable. You, you can install it, and this can run. So it's just a start. It's still the very, very beginnings of this. Right? How do, how do I start ship? Start of cut yeah. on, you know, of, of this next generation software. How do I, how do I ship vCenter as a container, uh, yeah. group of containers, <laughs> right? Um, or NSX Manager, or, you know, any, any of the software that VMware has, you know, 
foundationally. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. So now that you've taken us through that, what is the um, the value that VMware is wrapping around that? So you know, Kubernetes is, is an open source uh, thing. I I did some research before we sat down. It seems like Kubernetes has the vast majority of mindshare and market share. Yeah, and uh, so, I'm just so glad about that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to say like I don't think that um, you know VMware is trying to pick a horse in the race. Right. I think what, what, what makes, and, and I'm glad that's not the case, uh, not just as a VMware person, I'm glad for the industry, I'm glad as a technologist, because I think I don't really care what the standard is. Right? There's a few different competing technologies, they're all pretty similar, I'm not going to say one's better than the other, um, but we need, to, we need to decide on something so we can move forward as an industry, and I'm glad there's virtually zero controversy around Kubernetes. Docker has kind of put Swarm on the backseat, and they've moved, they're diving into Kubernetes um, very, uh, very intensely. Uh, and I think every major technology provider, I can't think of one that isn't uh, getting on onto Kubernetes. Um, and so it's, it's a, I think that's a really powerful thing of it. Um, now, so Kubernetes, it's, it's a revolutionary for enterprise and, how, and being able to provide these, these cl- cloud services. Um, but getting, it, and I'll say it's one of the other reasons why, right? Why has DevOps always been hard? Why are most people, why do we read articles every day? I'm scared because I'm going to have to learn how to be a programmer. Everyone's going to have to learn how to be a programmer, right? And, and we're all going to have to change everything. And we're going to have to go through the Phoenix Project and go through four near business death experiences <laughs> to be able to do this. And, uh, you know, I want to like to point out is that's the truth with every single new technology. Every single new technology was that hard at first. And what happened is we found general purpose patterns that work for the vast majority of workloads. And then we automate all that up, right? And then we deliver that as a general purpose system and so people can consume it. And so every, every technology that's become big, you know, started really difficult and became much easier over time. And so uh, Kubernetes using it is actually really, really elegant. It's the getting it piece that's a little tough, right? Because um. as is common in a lot of open source projects, particularly infrastructure, um, you know, the, the thrust of the community is not necessarily making to make something that anybody can download and just use, right? It's making kind of a, a common a vehicle for standards in the industry. So as different cloud providers and as different software providers uh, produce their software that the end result is compatible. But most, most of the open source product, it's not polished for like, you know, end user usage. And you know, Kubernetes is, is, is no different. It's an open source project. Uh, it doesn't, it inherently does not include um, enterprise grade networking. And that's not a knock. They know that. That's why they build networking plugins, right? And, mm-hmm. and a, a framework that allows third party because they know a lot of uh, people are going to need it, right? And things like load balancing, it's, just, it's, it's inherently necessary. You cannot use Kubernetes without load balancing, but you have to integrate kind of an external um, thing. It doesn't just, it's just not part of the thing. You're, uh, you're kind of describing the, the classic, you know, man, it, you know, isn't this automation and orchestration great? The one thing they can't do is install itself. Yeah. Right. On onto bare metal or, or onto a bare VM, right? Yeah. Or a cluster of VMs. So um, I you you teased it. I'm, I'm kind of thinking what you're about to tell me is that VMware has kind of an easy way to 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 set that up. That's exactly it, right? And so that's exactly what PKS is. PKS is a Kubernetes cluster as a service. So what's a Kubernetes cluster? Kubernetes clusters just a couple servers, right? Could be physical servers, could be virtual servers. Uh, there's an insane amount of reasons why, for why you want to do virtual. Right? Um, but either way, you need, you need a couple servers, and there's going to be a master server, right, your orchestrator, and then there's worker servers. And so it's a pretty basic to understand, I think. If say, I have a container, an Nginx container I want to run, I could manually SSH into a server and say, run this container. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is I want to send a command to Kubernetes master server, and that Kubernetes master server will say, okay, I'm going to go find the right uh, worker node to, to go put this on based on, you know, which one has the most best performance, the worst performance of policy decisions, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and not, it doesn't stop there, though, right? And this is where, because um, we, we don't just want to have an easy ability for enterprise to be able to, to, to give a cloud-like experience, right? We want those efficiencies, too. We all heard about all the tremendous efficiencies of cloud, and what do they come from? They come from automation. And so when I tell Kubernetes, I want you to go run this container for me, it doesn't just run it. It's, it's declarative. So it's going to always say that this container should be running. 
And if for some reason that container isn't running at any point in time, it's going to automatically implement self-healing actions with no user intervention. And so most likely, you know, where we really want to get, you know, once we get this all well, I think, uh, and when I say we, I think it's there today. It's right. in terms of like as a customer, as you, as you use it more and get some familiar with it, it's pretty easy to get to the point where it just hums, right? right. And uh, by the time you heard that there was, oh, there was a blip in something, uh, it's already fixed. And by the way, it never really impacted production traffic anyways because right. of the way the system was built. So I, I feel like the problem that's being solved is, um, you know, this, this idea of developers, you know, being able to consume different layers and, and the dependency mapping. We already talked about that. So in order to get there, you, you want to have a container engine. So we talked about Docker. But in order to really make that enterprise grid, you need to have an orchestration engine like Kubernetes sitting on top of that. But then who installs, maintains, upgrades, patches, manages the lifecycle of Kubernetes? Like we've really just moved the problem from, oh, we'll do all the different layers to um, who needs to own Kubernetes and the lifecycle yeah. of Kubernetes. But we solve that problem. There's, there's, and you start to dissect that problem, you realize there's a lot of complexity to it. Like, okay, so I have a master server and I've got uh, worker nodes. That's mm -hmm. what we call our, our, it's actually called nodes. We're called workers, you know, some terminology in the Kubernetes community, right? <laughs> I call them worker nodes. So you got a master server, you got your, your worker nodes. You're not jargon compliant. Yeah, no, and <laughs> what, what happens if, if your master node dies? Mm -hmm. Um, what happens if your worker node dies? You're literally back to exactly where we were before virtualization. Right. Except I think you're in a much worse spot because when you actually go out and look, how do I get Kubernetes and install it? It's distributed application suite. So you go to GitHub and there's, there's a lot, a lot of different functional components. Um, the installation configuration is dramatically more difficult. Uh, you mm -hmm. can go look on like Kubernetes, the hardware, or have you. It's, it's, it's not an executable file or a tarball that someone sends you and you install. Right. It, it, it's, it's you clone repos from GitHub, you build things, you deploy things in a very, and you have to do really, really low level, um, like nitty gritty low level uh, Linux yeah. networking stuff and so on. It's, it's, it's challenging. I, I hate right. to use the word OpenStack in the same sense as Kubernetes because mm -hmm. I think the, the ultimate um, impact of those communities are going to be very different. Kubernetes is, is, a, is going to be much more uh, globally impactful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's using it, right? right. Um, it became a standard. It's kind of like Linux, right, in that sense. Yeah. And in a real sense now, just like uh, if you look at VMware's business model, um, you could go get VMs, set them up, run them, but you mm -hmm. look at, you know, 60% of our revenue is actually professional services helping customers implement, you know, large virtual environments, right? So what we're really saying is a pivotal uh, Kubernetes service is about coming in. Uh, you don't have to buy the actual uh, product because it's open sourced, right? But then mm -hmm. all of that service that needs to come on top, your enterprises just want to basically run big implementation projects. You guys can come in and, and offer that. Offer and, that that's a, and so it's, it's uh, you know, part of it is, is some of the professional services. And, and uh, you know, I think it's a huge aspect because I think if you've been trying to do DevOps before, um, you know, it's, it's a challenging thing. And I, so I think part of it is having the product that really lays the foundation for something that's functional to begin with. Because, I mean, if you're trying to do something really hard, it's always going to be really hard. And if you put some new components in that make it easier, and I think it makes this idea of adopting DevOps and, and really implementing these things. Um, and, and then part of that is, is built into the system, right? So let's just make it real concrete. So when you get PKS, you know, what exactly is it, right? So uh, PKS is a couple virtual machines. And what they do is I can enter, once I have it installed, I enter a command like pks create cluster and hit enter, and it'll build a Kubernetes cluster for me. And the idea being that uh, as in, in IT, I'm going to have a line of business or a group of developers or a developer, depending on how I structure my environment and so on. Uh, and they're going to come to either me or to a self-service portal, and they want to make an API call. Um, like they do with Amazon or, or Google or what have you as a cloud service and have something generated for them automatically. And so that's what this, this product uh, enables. It, uh, and uh, it enables, uh, and it does, has all the automations uh, that, uh, have, that, that make all that happen ship with the product. So, so you buy yeah. it, you run through a virtual appliance, right. and then you get that. So I got I to gotta, I gotta, I gotta talk about this because I think this is where some confusion is with some mm -hmm. people, and maybe even myself, which is PKS uh, is 
not a service that we're running, VMware is running. It's a service that you implement that's going to be a container service for your users who want to have a cluster. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, um, and forgive me for not making that uh, more clear. And so it's, it's uh, you know, software that you'll, you'll download and install into your vSphere environment. Uh, and and uh, then there will be a virtual machine uh, with an API, and there's a you know like command line interface as well. Sure. Uh, and uh, that virtual machine will go and build other virtual machines for you. And so say I want a Kubernetes cluster, it's going to create that Kubernetes cluster, and right. it actually does right. install the software on on the fly. Uh, it's kind of an important product to have out because we we don't necessarily have to do it that way, but by doing it that way, every single time you get a perfectly clean build. Ah, uh, so the developer team needs their development. Kubernetes cluster, the production team or the DevOps team maintains also like a test cluster and then a production cluster, and then maybe there's a public-facing cluster. And so maybe just for one product stack, you have like four different clusters. Yeah. But then it works so well that the, you know, 12 other teams want it. And then that goes so well <laughs> that 80 other teams want it. So you really don't want to do that by hand. You don't want to hire a guy for $200,000 a year or a team of four people for, you know, each making $200,000 a year fully loaded to kind of hand build that because then they become a bottleneck. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like, I mean, there was just a, a, a Twitter thread just recently by, um, shoot, I'm forgetting his name, Carl. I, I, I can share it later. But uh, uh, a guy who works for a Silicon Valley um, uh, automated car startup, and he, was, he tweets a lot about uh, what he's doing, building his own Kubernetes implementation there for that company, uh, and and just how challenging it is. And this is somebody who who gets on the stage at the big you know mm-hmm. KubeCon type conferences regularly. Very well known guy. Um, he was a, a developer at Pivotal. He was a developer at Mesosphere, um, and that's his team. And uh, you know, so I think his tweet was something like, you know, if you if you if you take six months and a team of six people with our level of experience and think you're going to have a functional Kubernetes implementation, good luck. You know, save your million dollars. And this is, this is straight from his quote, he's not VMware affiliated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you see a lot of stuff like this. It's, it's, it's challenging to, to get those environments built up and predictable. And I think, you know, with, with PKS, uh, you know, to get it, you get a virtual appliance, right? Um, you know, the virtual appliance you get is actually something called Ops Manager first. Mm-hmm. And Ops Manager gives you a, a little simple dashboard um, that helps you launch PKS. Uh, and so once you have uh, you know, Ops Manager running, you just do a virtual appliance. And then you uh, upload the file, you download the file, then you upload the file. It's as easy as you can imagine, right? Windows, uh, boxes, and you point click, or you can skip it if you want. Uh, and once you upload the file, it gives you a form to fill out. It's the same as an OVA form, right? It's going to say, what's my name? What's my IP address? It'll ask a couple harder questions like, when I create a Kubernetes cluster, I need a range of IP addresses. Mm-hmm. So you got to carve mm-hmm. those out. So you got to think a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you fill in the form and you hit save. And once you fill in the form and save, you're done, right? And, and this is, so when you think about like an IT operator, right, having to learn all of this stuff. Um, you think about, uh, I talked a lot to, to IT operators uh, who are interested and intimidated a lot by this. And, and I would say, you know, which one of your virtual machine administrators ever knew what was running on VM number 612? Hmm. So the reality is, is you've got an Oracle cluster, you've got an Exchange cluster, right? And, and these work well. Your, your Exchange cluster works well today, right? And, and you keep it up and running and people are generally pretty happy with it. Uh, and, and there's a couple people who know the details of how it's set up. It may even be in Azure, right? And you still need to know the details of how it's set up. All of IT never knew how that was set up. There's a couple people that did. Those are not the people who have to take the help desk calls, right? We know that that because uh, they're going to go into level one, they're going to do a couple things. They'll go to level two. They're going to check and see how's the I'm going to look in vCenter. I'm going to see how are my IOPS is the CPU. Is there some infrastructure problem? You know, and eventually, if it's a bad enough problem, it may get to those two or three people who know about how the exchange cluster is set up. Mm-hmm. And that's a model that works for IT. That's not go to Phoenix Project and go through a near-death experience. And that's what PKS gives you. Because it makes it very easy for someone with a traditional skill set to hand out Kubernetes clusters, right? As you hand out those Kubernetes clusters, you're going to go to a developer team. The developer team is going to say, oh, I've got a problem. What does that mean to the virtual infrastructure operator? That means what virtual machines, right? And they know already, I'm on cluster Z. We tell them, okay, well, that means these four virtual machines. And just like they always did, you know, they're going to go through and look and say, any problems with the virtual machines? And so it allows us to to really take this, this esoteric, challenging concept of DevOps um, and, and bring it with all of its efficiencies and with all of its automations into a model that is very comfortable and familiar with for enterprise IT. So even if I do like this idea that VMware is, is going to give me this uh, you know, 
amount of value. Now, what is the danger that if you go with a VMware flavor of Kubernetes that now you're on this VMware dependency? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, say if VMware doesn't deliver, like, like the tens of millions of dollars it's going to cost me to get off of VMware's, like, customized specific flavor of Kubernetes and, and back to, like, a vanilla version. Uh, and, and that's one of the, it's, it's, it's not just the beauty of PKS, and we'll talk about that, but I think from, from that perspective, from, from the perspective of I as a customer want to keep the code that I own, the code that I write, or whether I bought it, or, or that's mine, and I want it to be mine. And if I want to go choose a different infrastructure provider, I should darn well be able to, right? right. And that's something we've been trying to for years, and I think Kubernetes is the single best tool for that goal that I think maybe ever existed in IT. Um, because, you know, so I can take, uh, today I can take an application. I can set up a, a, a cluster for Kubernetes. Maybe that's on my own premise with PKS. And I could go to Google Container Engine, and I could go to Amazon and, and Azure Container Engine, and right in the Kubernetes layer, I can create a Kubernetes Federation cluster that will take the same exact application with the same exact manifest and deploy it across all those environments, right? Yeah. You prepare, you don't, talk, so I can implement full container-level micro-segmentation in PKS, and I never once mention the name NSXT and how I do that. Yeah. I use a completely abstracted, generic Kubernetes language so I can take the same application and the same manifest, the same deployment manifest, all the scripts, no puppet, no ship, everything right. I need to deploy this application yeah. and just park it somewhere so else. It's non-dependent. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and there hasn't really been uh, really good standards for orchestration either, right. right? If you're using HP, you know, their management interfaces, if you had different management interfaces that were doing orchestration, there was no way to move that from, from platform to platform. So mm -hmm. Kubernetes is kind of like now taking that and making a generic standard open source model for doing orchestration. That's and so it, 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 yeah. it, it takes you much further down that journey versus where you were with previous platforms. And maybe, uh, you know, uh, 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 Puppet and Chef had generic, you know, scripting mm -hmm. languages that you could also move from, from platform to platform, but you there, there's a fundamental there. difference right. there, right? And right. that is like, when you think about it, if I'm taking it, you know, kind of a more, you know, uh, a traditional approach around say, I might do a Puppet or Chef or some sort of scripting. Um, and I say, you know, I bought an application and whether it's a container or whether it's a VM, I, or I'm sorry, whether it's an executable or a tarball, uh, I've, got, I've always got my applications the same way, the way I don't want to run them, right? The way that I can install on one server. And now I've got to go and figure out how to do load balancing, high availability and security and all right. that other stuff. Right. And the beauty of Kubernetes is it has that stuff built in. So that part of the reason why DevOps was so ridiculously hard, right, is I think about, oh, I got this application and it needs to do all these load balancer stuff. And there's like 672 steps and I got to go script out every single one of those steps, right? Now Kubernetes already knows how it's going to do the automation. It already has all those steps built in. And it has a general best practice approach that works, right? Google uses it. The in, the, everybody in the industry is using this now. And it works just very, very elegantly well, kind of like x86 works, you know? Uh, and so now instead of providing all the script, I'm just providing the variables. Okay. I'm going to up-level a little bit because we are running out of time, but I do have a couple specific questions. So um, this is a Pivotal slash VMware product. The, the Pivotal components come from the idea that they're building the Kubernetes uh, infrastructure. Then we're putting on VMs, and so there it's a VM Pivotal. Uh, where does it, where's the role in uh, delineation? Do we sell it? Uh, does VMware sell it? Or do yeah. you work with Pivotal? Where, how does that play out? From um, a packaging perspective. Yeah, for, for it, it actually both, right? You can purchase it from Pivotal. You can purchase it from uh, uh, VMware. Uh, you can also purchase it from Dell. And the rest of the partners should be coming on board within a couple of months here. Um, and uh, so engineering-wise, uh, it does slant a little bit, like you said, like a little bit more of the stuff that impacts the VM side is, is more heavily engineered on, uh, on the on VMware side. side. Right. Uh, and vice but it's actually but it's a collaborative, collaborative effort, and then we're just selling yeah. it. You, you can buy from Pivotal. You can buy from us. You can buy from yeah. Dell partners probably going forward. So that makes sense. And even right. say in the last right. 90 days, um, uh, VM, VMware has been working to increase our participation in, in the Kubernetes open source community. So last year we came in like 18, like number 18 in, in terms of contributions to Kubernetes. Right. But just VMware alone, and this doesn't include the Pivotal contribution, we were the number five contributor to uh, uh, Kubernetes open source community oh, on wow. code. Uh, and that's only VMware. Hmm. Nice. nice. And that's in the, in the past 90 days.
Great. We, I have think a, we have a hands-on lab if right. uh, people want to go and try it. Oh yeah. So, so okay. Really I think I finally understand PKS now, right? Like awesome. then this is this is a step forward for me. Uh, now I have to go back and say what I'm confused about. Then mm-hmm. is uh, you have a T-shirt that says Pivotal Container Service, mm-hmm. right? What is Pivotal <laughs> Container Service, and how does that make sense? Like that's a totally because I'm all people say what okay, and then I got one final one, but I'll save it. Which is then there's PKE, but we'll just. Just explain Pivotal Container Service versus Pivotal PKS, which is Pivotal Kubernetes Service. Well, actually, so you're, you're kind of right on both fronts there. And so what it is, is it's not a VMware thing. It's an industry thing, right? So you have containers, and containers main, don't necessarily need to be run by Kubernetes. They could be run right. by something else. But okay. it's important to know who's running your containers. As that, let's say if I'm shipping software, right. it's like, am I gonna, is it, will it be compatible with Linux or will it be compatible with Windows? Where can it run? And it's like, if I know it'll be compatible with, say, Kubernetes, because it does things a very specific way. Right. Uh, yeah, so, um, so Pivotal Container Services is some type of service that's just so it's standardizing on containers. It's the same thing. Right. It's, it's, it's the industry standard is that when you, you have a container service that happens to be running con- Kubernetes. Okay. You abbreviate That's the word container gen- yeah, with a K. Right. With a, right. Okay. <laughs> and right. so it's, it's container with a C spelled out. With K. But, in the abbreviation but So the K it. isn't for Kubernetes, <laughs> right? Even though we're using Kubernetes yeah. as the framework to do the automation that's where that comes from. Yeah, okay. and VMware's yeah. not the only place you'll hear that. It's yeah, sure. Some people will give me a hard time about it. Why did you do that? That was stupid. And well, if we didn't do that, and everybody else was abbreviating containers with a K, and we were the only ones that weren't, then yeah, yeah, be a different story. Yeah, yeah, it would be a different story. But everybody's <laughs> treating it that way. Yeah, okay, so it's pretty it. normal right. in the industry. So it's a it's container service, which is our, our container service is based on Kubernetes, and so we mm-hmm. can do PKS because it's cute. Right. And, yeah. And K's are good because I'm Nordic. So I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming that if I go in the industry, I'm going to see a bunch of different companies with a something KS. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes yeah. some of them are called Kubernetes service or Kubernetes. Some of them will be container engine abbreviated with a K. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. kind of a mix. Yeah, okay. So that's how that goes. Then I got the last one, which <clears throat> this could be a whole podcast just in itself. <laughs> so feel free to abbreviate it, which is PKE. I know we offer up a PKE. Can you do VKE. like a... Uh, is it VKE? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. That's, that's my problem. That was, yeah, you hear VMware. P and V, and then it sounds like, uh, sounds like PKE versus... But it's VKE. Yeah, so uh, right. PKS is, is a joint pivotal of VMware product, and VKE is, is just a VMware product. It's not um, in opposition or anything. Uh, we're all a happy family, but uh, it's, it's if you want to consume it as a service. Um, so PKS, you, you're going to install. Uh, you can install it on your on-premise. You can actually also install it in AWS, and you can install it in Google Compute Environment as well. Uh, and why would I want to possibly do that? Well, what if I want to have the same script, the same control over a cloud environment? Exactly. Because if you go to anybody's cloud provider service, they're going to have some different APIs that you have to interface with. Mm-hmm. And so if I want to have, you know, AWS, uh, Google, Everybody using my the same. premise yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. the same, I can install PKS, but I'm still going to install it. I'd go to Google Compute Engine, right? And I'd get the virtual machines and install, and install it there. Now, um, and then there's, I just want to consume Kubernetes from the cloud. Right? Right. And that's what VKE is. But it actually is a very, very cool service because VKE, um, unlike like a Google GKE or the Amazon or mm-hmm. the, the uh, uh, Azure versions, each of those run in their own cloud. VKE runs natively across all of them, right? So right, right now, I think it's um, AWS, and I think they, I forget exactly when they're onboarding Azure and, and Google, but they're, they're going to have a yeah. bunch of clouds if they don't so already. So that's VMware's KS yeah. service but in, in, in the cloud providers. Right? So right. This is really great. One user interface, but but right. your your infrastructure provision across all the biggest cloud providers for the ultimate reliability. But as if you don't want to be installing it yourself. Right. Neat. Neat. Like it. That that yeah. finally now that uh, now I'm up to speed with all things. You know, <laughs> awesome. container with a K. Well, I have to say that you must be pretty smart because I feel like I understand it. And I always feel like that means that the person who's trying to explain it to me. Pretty good at their job. Did it, did it, I mean, did more like I've fumbled right. through everything, you know. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we are running out of time. It is getting uh, uh, good. Some people are starting to to drop off because we're we're ten minutes over because we got started late. Uh, but we got you on most ninety nine percent of the stuff you've talked about is uh, recording, and you've certainly straightened out some things for me. Um, we'll do you know another couple minutes. Uh, what are you guys working on for the rest of the year? What excites you about the space? And then where are you going to be? And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, so um, let me start at the end there. So my Twitter handle is a fuel. It's F E W E L L. Anyone feel free to like connect. Give them a call. Or LinkedIn yep. or, or whatever works best. 
Um, and no, I forgot the first. <laughs> the, the first question is what excites you for the rest of the year? What do you guys, you know, what's what is happening with PKE and BKE? And, uh, you know, what's what do you think in your industry? What, what are you working on? What is, what's exciting you about yeah. this space? So I, I think it's just so exciting to see enterprises. Uh, and because I, I, I've come from that background. I've been an SE. And before that, I was an enterprise operator. I'm not a cloud native guy. Native. I, I'm trying to, like, speak that language. But like mm -hmm. a lot of us know it's not the easiest thing in the world if you didn't come up that way. Uh, so now I can speak that language pretty well, but I just I love the fact that uh, it, things are getting easier and easier. We're, we're solving some of these challenges that have been so historically, you know, I think enterprise IT has got a bad shake in a lot of ways. Where we say, oh, look, this cloud provider can do that. At the same time, you take the same requirement and tell enterprise, oh, you've got, you should do that, but you need to do this, this, and that, and there's no way around it. You know, it hasn't been right. a fair playing field. Uh, and I think we're getting we're getting closer there. So I'm excited about that. I think Kubernetes is the center of what beca was becoming the cloud operating system. And so in around the Kubernetes community, the other new open source projects are starting to Plug around in. that that will yeah. become the next ah, cloud operating okay. system. Neat, neat. Then uh, the, the the second to last one, because I'm going to throw another one in, uh, is uh, where are you going to be? You're going to be at AWS reInvent for sure. You're yeah. going to be doing a power session. That sounds I'll awesome. I'll be there. I'll be at I, Enterprise we'll DevOps Summit in yeah. October. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm going to KubeCon. I think for right now, I know I'm going to Enterprise DevOps Summit. I'm going to AWS. I'm sure I'll be at others. I go to a lot of our shows. And if not me, somebody from Cloud Native uh, PKS team is going to be at all the shows that are in that sphere, right, in that realm. Is there a, um, is there a Twitter handle for the Cloud Native uh, team? Yeah, it's at, uh, um, at Cloud Native Apps. Cloud not Native VMware apps. in there, it's just at Cloud Native Apps. Okay, cool. And there's a great uh, YouTube page that has tons of educational videos and, and these really cool light boards, right, that really help to break down and simplify uh, new Cloud Native and container topics. And we got a couple thank yous. Uh, Vibosh and WonderNerd both said, wow, thank you very much. Uh, this was absolutely fantastic and really helped me understand the history, evolution, and where VMware is going with PKS. So you know, thank, yeah, don't get so very much, many yeah. thank yous uh, from the chat window. So you did, you did <laughs> a really sure. good and job. Free, reach out to me. Yeah. Hit me yeah. up on LinkedIn or whatever. That's a good way. If you want to ask if you have any questions, I'm happy to yeah. chat with anybody about and it. Then, and then finally, you know, in the last minute, what is serverless computing and where are we going with that? <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah, never, uh, hey, well, it's, it's going to be on Kubernetes. Yeah, there, right? there you so go. That? <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. Uh, hey, thanks for coming into the studio. It's great. Thanks for jogging over, getting all hot, and uh, it's a it's, it's good to have you here. And uh, that was fun, and I, I enjoyed it. We accomplished our mission. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thanks so much. So with great that, question. for the barbecue report at the end of the day, um, I have not done any barbecue. Neither did Wonder Nerd, um, and I don't think Vibro. Rebro Bish or anyone else on the show has any barbecue report. I meant to barbecue this weekend and I just uh, didn't get around to it. I was myself. moving this weekend. Oh so. my goodness. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, that is. So, so with that, we'll just say uh, somebody go out there and do some interesting barbecue for next week so that we got, we got some, some good barbecue. We're coming up to Thanksgiving. I'm sure we'll have you know, some barbecue, good, I, I good barbecue turkey stuff. My wife started putting little bits of watermelon in the hamburger meat when she makes the patties. And you know what it does is you don't taste the watermelon. It just makes the burger really moist. So there's a tip. Oh, watermelon. Not only that, but then it looks like it's kind of rare, even though we're not allowed to have you know, uncooked <laughs> yeah, meat anymore. You have a little, little red flavor there. There you go. Tip of the day, throw <laughs> some watermelon in your, in your hamburger meat when you're going to grill. Okay. Okay, cool. All right, with that, everybody have a great week. We'll be here again next week, and maybe we'll actually hit the big red record button at the beginning of the show instead of seven minutes in. With that, <laughs> have, have a great week. Talk to you later.